You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 385. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Brian Ego. What's up, dude? All right, troops, how we doing? The uh, the twat signal has sounded, Brian's back in. Where are our normal other folks today, Andrash? Well, unfortunately, uh, well, we knew about Annika not being able to make it this week either after uh, being away for last week as well. But unfortunately, Pontus fell ill last minute. This is how it usually happens, right? And you were so kind to give a positive reply to my request for joining me yeah. uh, in such a short notice. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you very much. It is always a pleasure having you on the show. Always, always fun to be here. Sad to hear that Pontus isn't well. Dear listeners, yeah. send your love to Pontus. I'm sure the placebo effect of your love will help. definitely help him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so how have you been? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Busy, as always, mostly with life stuff, but a fair amount of little sceptic stuff going on as well. Some of us went off from Glasgow Sceptics and Edinburgh Sceptics, went off to the Scottish UFO and Paranormal Conference recently. That was a load of fun. I've also been bouncing out articles for the Sceptic magazine as well. In fact, on last week's show, you were speaking about the Titan tragedy. The, the my latest yeah. article from the Skeptic is about that very subject. Um, kind of inspired by Susan Gerbic, actually. Hello, Susan. I know mm-hmm. you're listening. Um, <laughs> so she put she put a YouTube video out about um, uh, you know an alleged psychic who was reacting to the disaster, and you know that kind of inspired me to go and look at other instances of that sort of thing, and I expanded it out to you know grifters, bad journalists as well, and other opportunists. So, you know, um, go check that out, folks. Skeptic.org.uk if you get a chance. Sorry for the plug, Andras. i got to get it done every, every once in a while. No, I wanted to do that anyway. So it's <laughs> great. And you, Andras, working, I guess? Just working nonstop? Working, yeah. yeah. So behind the curtains, folks, right? Andras right now is away in a hotel room somewhere secret in Canada right now where he's shepherding around a bundle of tourists so it is evening for him and it is early morning for me we are stretching the time zones just to bring you this show today you're welcome yeah yeah this is how it gets truly international right it's it cannot get any more international than that so we are sitting in two different countries but the country i'm staying currently staying in is not the country where i belong uh well I would love to, actually, because it's Canada, for God's sake. Um, And um, I'm sitting in Canmore in a hotel room. And not too long ago, I mean, literally about an hour ago, someone else was here as well, talking to me. We mutually interviewed each other. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that was Adrian Hill, whom a lot of our listeners probably know from the Skeptic Zone. And uh, she lives in Calgary, which is just about an hour and a half drive from where I'm currently staying. So she was kind enough to spend the evening with with us. I mean, she joined us for dinner with my group. Oh, nice. <laughs> and then we ended up chatting and uh, doing interviews with each other. 
for the zone and for the ESP. I hope to be able to get that interview on this episode or the next episode. You can hear what she had to say. Sweet. Speaking of meetups with uh, local skeptics, I'd like to make that call again that I did last week for skeptical meetups across the Baltic states where I'm heading very soon. At the beginning of August, I will be spending a lot of time in the largest cities in the Baltic states, uh, Vilnius, Riga and Tallinn. And I would really love to meet local skeptics there. I know you guys are out there because we know from our stats that some of our listeners are based there. That sounded um, really sinister. We know where you live, listeners. Yeah, We're coming to get you. <laughs> no, obviously. On our stats, there are geographic pieces of data as well. But I, I could be wrong about that. But yeah. It's very really open-minded. From, from yeah, come on, Baltic yeah. people, all right? <laughs> like, look, I, I went to meet Andras one time when he was working in Scotland, okay? It was a fun evening. Yeah. He does very good yeah. cuddles, right? He's very huggable, right? Yeah. Hugs not necessary, but mm, so enjoyable, right? And you get good chit chat as well. Okay, come on, like don't don't leave them hanging. Okay, yeah, please, please don't. Yeah, speaking of skeptical meetups again, you are involved with the organization of something really cool that is right before QED. That's that's happening this uh, September, right? Indeed, yes. What's that? My myself and my fellow skeptics over at the skeptics in the pub online group are going to be running skeptic camp on friday the 22nd of september and i can happily say that the applications to speak at skeptic camp are winging their way in nicely nothing that we are allowed to reveal to you yet but there are still gaps right and and again i was harassing all of my fellow esp presenters on facebook chat a while back about getting their applications in <laughs> Still haven't done that, by the way. Hint, hint, hint. But yeah, listeners, if you're coming to QED, get there early. Skepticamp is always fun. Really good variety of speakers. And, uh, you know, if you have something to say yourself, if you can be reasonably coherent for 10 minutes and manage to field a couple of questions afterwards, we would love to hear from you. So go to sitp.online forward slash Skepticamp in order to see what the deal is. And uh, if you're interested, go ahead and apply. Yeah, and of course, uh, it will be available. The link will be available on our show notes as well. Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, we will have a couple of things uh, to unpack here for this week's episode, for the two of us. But Pontus has pre-recorded an interview with Nicola Throp, who is one of the, uh, the members of the organizing committee of the aforementioned QED. Mm. So let's listen to that before we move on to the other stuff. So, as everybody know on this show, we always go on and on about QED and how fantastic that is. So, instead of doing that today, I thought, or we thought, we would bring in somebody who can uh, do it for us, somebody who's more involved, so you can hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And I'm sorry for calling you a horse. Uh, I didn't mean that, but I know you work like animals. So, with me today is Nicola Throp, who is part of the organizing committee of QED. Welcome to the ESP. Thank you, Pontus. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course, of course. So um, let's go right into it. I mean, uh, 
Well, let's take your background a little bit, because you, I don't think you were around when the first QED was organized. You, you came along later, right? Well, I was. It was ah. very much part of the, the day, but I hadn't been involved in sort of the months and months preparation of organizing it. So in the first QED, many people will know I help organize the volunteers for the weekend. So oh, that's one, yeah. one, of the, one of the things that I do as part of the, part of the organizing. So I did that the first year, but I hadn't been involved in all of the nitty gritty, you know, months and months conversations. So I think it's either QD2 or QD3 that sort of came on the board as a, as a full time oh. uh, member, but I've been involved from the start. Okay, okay. So you are a veteran when it comes to organizing <laughs> QD. Good. I've, I've been I've, there and done it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel we're in good hands then. So for, I mean, everybody who listens to this should know about QED, but just to make sure, for the uninitiated, what <laughs> is QED? So QED is a amazing two-day conference in uh, Manchester in the UK, and it's all about scepticism and critical thinking, and we try and bring together um, a group of speakers and panels and workshops and podcasts like ESP to the weekend and give people a good time. And, you know, hopefully people will learn new stuff and, and see new speakers that they haven't heard before and, you know, explore important ideas and things that are happening in the community and wider. And so, you know, there's, there's lots of amazing content on the main stage and, and the different um, breakout sessions, but also what for, for us as an organizing committee is really, really important about QED is the community that come and the social aspect and the fact that people can have this precious time once a year to have a really amazing celebration and, you know, meet up with people that they haven't seen before. Like you and I, Pontus, like yeah. it's lovely to, to see you and we get to see each other at QED yes. and, and, and to be able to have that you know, time hanging out with people that we, we really, really like, but you don't get to see very often. So so hopefully that is an adequate description of QED. Uh, it, sounds, it sounds very good to me. And I've been to a few. I, I think I don't remember. Uh, 2014 was my first QED and I haven't missed hmm. one since. And I'm no. not planning to miss anyone in the future either. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I hope, um, as you say, I'm sure lots of your listeners will already know about QED and have been to QED, but... Um, you know, every year we, we take it on a, on a year by year basis as, you know, what, what we think we can do and what we think, you know, is, is there still appetite for QED? You know, we, we don't just take it for granted. Mm. So hopefully everybody on that will be listening in, if they haven't already bought a ticket, will, will decide that yes, that, you know, they, they want to come to QED again. Yeah. There's one thing that is a bit different with QED. There's several things, but one thing in particular <laughs> uh, that is different with QED compared to other skeptical conferences, and that is that you have all these different tracks. Things are happening hmm. at the same time, which is a curse and uh, a challenge, <laughs> but also very, very good. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think, the, I mean, the first QED, I think there was a main stage track and some panels and I think as we as our audience grew and, and, and we grew we just figured that we want to give people the best experience and try and you know make as much of the space that we had available to us as possible and so you know those those additional tracks were kind of born really mm. and I think you know it is it is always hard we want to make sure that we're coming up with with new things every year you know there's, there's always a mix of you know, some things we have every year, of course, but um, by and large, we try and put 
not repeat ourselves. So it's always a challenge <laughs> that, that we set ourselves. But I think, like I said just before, you know, commu- the community, the skeptical community is, is so valuable to, to what we do. And we, we think about our audience very, very strongly. And, it, you know, it's the heart of everything we do to sound a bit cheesy, but, but it absolutely is. You know, it's like, mm. what would our attendees want? And that goes from, the ticket price and trying to keep QED as affordable as we possibly, possibly can and giving our attendees the absolute most for that, for their money. And, mm. and, and so I think being able to have multiple tracks and, you know, we recognize that everybody's going to want to do the same thing at the same time. And, you know, to be able to have the option of seeing something else, or I think, you know, particularly panel sessions um, and, and, and breakout sessions, you know, they, they're, they're in smaller spaces. So it's the fact that if you can't get into the thing that you wanted to see, well, maybe there's something else going on. You know, you're not just sitting around, well, I've got to maybe go and sit in the, the bar or maybe I'll go to my hotel room. You know, there should hopefully be something on yeah. for everybody. And also if there's too much on, there's a space for people to go out and be quiet and just chill out for a little bit as well. So um, hopefully we're covering all of our bases as much as we possibly can within <laughs> within the confines of uh, the Mercure in Manchester. So Yeah. So, so, yeah. So you have to, if you go to QED, and, and everybody should really, you will have to make some very difficult choices. You'll have to choose either the main stage for this particular hour, or you'll go to the panel debate, or you will go to uh, the live recording of some fancy podcast, <clears throat> could be ours, could be somebody else's. And you can't see it all. But uh, I can say, over the years when I've been to QED, I've never been disappointed. Even when I thought, ah, I really would have wanted to see that, but I chose that instead. And it's always great. So the quality of all of these uh, activities are always amazing. I don't know how you do it. And you do it also. This is, you talked about keeping the, the ticket price as low as possible. This is done absolutely on an, as a non-profit on a voluntary basis. You don't get paid. Nobody no. gets paid. <laughs> no. <laughs> you just do it because you're fantastic people. Well, thank you very much, Pontus. Um, <laughs> I mean, from so the, so there's myself and the six of us that organise QED. So there's myself, Andy, Alice, Rick, Mike and Marsh. We, we, are, we are the six. And yeah, it's just us. And, you know, we do this in our spare time because we really enjoy it and we think it's worthwhile and, and, you know, seeing the enjoyment that other people get out of it when, when they attend QD is, is you can't put a price on that. And, and so, you know, we, we continue to do it and, you know, obviously people do get paid, like, you know, we pay an AV crew, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but of course. course they don't do it for the love of it, but you know, all of the, the ticket price is, is there is just goes to paying to put the event on rather than paying yeah. us as, organizers so yeah, yeah. um hopefully that you know you know people will still want to come and, and <laughs> so we i can think they do i think on. they do i certainly want to <laughs> and do you still working on the program for this year right it's not entirely, uh, not entirely ready, but it, it's coming no, together it, it is so this year qed is a little bit earlier than normal um, the normal time we would have it. Normally, we tend to have it in October for various different reasons. We've had to bring that forward a little bit this year. Um, you know, we always have to work on our own availability, sort of first and first and foremost. Sure. Um, so it's a little bit earlier this year. So two and a half months ago, crikey, uh, it comes around very fast. So we have 
um, a few more things to announce. And we normally, you know, obviously we tend to announce uh, main stage speakers, um, perhaps Saturday night. We've just made our Saturday night announcement, which is very, very excited about. We've got a Hearshaw coming and Helen Arney, who has previously emceed uh, QED. She's coming back to do some songs on Saturday night. And Sean Doxy, um, all amazing comics and uh, musicians so really really excited about that but we tend to sort of you know have a schedule of when we want to announce things so you know it'll be main stage speakers as as sort of the the headline uh, guests and then you know panel sessions and workshops and things as we sort of we 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 see the shape of the event as as we're going along then we're able to put those things together so we're very busy at the moment compiling and and finalizing panel sessions and breakout sessions that we can hopefully announce in in the next few weeks so yeah watch this space there's more to announce there's more to announce (laughs) and to round off can you say the exact dates as well yes so qed itself is the 23rd and the 24th of september this year in manchester in the city center of manchester for those who haven't been it's very easy to get to Lots of European cities will fly into Manchester and then it, it's a short train ride into the city centre, so pretty accessible. And QED is at the Mercure Hotel, so people can stay there. And we do have a discount rate for attendees who call and, and book. But there's plenty of other options as well in the city centre. And so while QED itself is the 23rd and the 24th of September, we also run and give space to a sceptic camp on the Friday, which is the 22nd of September. And I would be very amiss to not mention the Skeptic Camp, which is, we don't organise it. We don't we don't have any sort of input into it, really. We just provide the space for Skeptic Camp to happen. And that is a completely free event on the Friday. So appreciate things are more challenging this year, perhaps financially for lots of people than they have been in the past. Um, so people don't need to miss out if they can't come to the whole weekend people can still come to the skeptic camp on the friday which is still in the same hotel and it's completely community-led so it's people who can submit and do their own 15 minute talk i think it's 15 minutes Mm. um on any subject that they like it doesn't even have to be a skeptical topic per se um any topic they like and you know to have that kind of community interaction and it's always a very packed event so in theory, it's a three-day event, but but the, but QED in and of itself is a Saturday and the Sunday, and Skeptic yes. Camp on the Friday. Right. I, I'm planning to come on the Thursday already because there's usually some <laughs> social event happening on Thursday evening as well. Uh, Manchester yeah. skeptics usually uh, put up some uh, skeptics in the pub talk or, or something like that, sure. and and I haven't heard if they will, but they usually do. And if they won't, there'll still be a lot of people around to you can socialize with. So. And the social aspect is actually the unofficial, I don't know if it's the fourth or the fifth track of, of QED, <laughs> because a lot of stuff is happening there. A lot of creative stuff is, as well. People are getting together and they come up with ideas for new projects or they can ask others to join their already ex- existing project. And, and lots of very, very busy, very, very fun. Yes. I personally, I, I love that, that aspect of QED. Yes. I love the social aspect. I love seeing people get together, just sort of, you know the, the atmosphere in the bar mm. during the weekend is re- is really lovely, and you know we've not sort of t- there's there's so many things we talk about QD, but you know hopefully it's an accessible event as well, and so you know for people to be able to come and feel comfortable at QED yes. and uh, and be able to participate, I think is a really important, very very important thing for us. So and and so the social aspect definitely is 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 as you say like the fourth the fourth track. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The good way of putting it, Pontus. <laughs> All right. 
Okay, so thank you very much for your time, Nicola. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person in, in September and good Me luck too. with the rest of the preparations now. Thank you so much, Pontus, and uh, lovely to be on. Okay, cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. That was a great interview. Nicola's always top value. Oh, and by the way, Nicola, if you're listening, can I have Ivy in the creche again this year, please? Thank you very much. <laughs> That's a great thing about QED. They think of everything. Yeah. See, so this, this, I, I, I don't know how these guys do it. Even after listening to uh, Nicola explaining a couple of things, no, no, I have no idea. How can a team of organizers be so professional while doing this for free? Yeah. I mean. <sighs> No that stone is, is left unturned at QED. The organisers spend not. all of their time turning all of the stones. Okay, they're like the rolling stones, except better. <laughs> yeah, and if someone is listening to this and haven't booked a ticket yet, please go and do it because you won't regret it. I promise. Yeah, it's an amazing weekend. It is the uh, best. And that, again, that more will have. more hugs from Andras available. Right, if you're there. And and slightly yeah, they are. They slightly are. jaggedy bony hugs from me as well, if you want. Um, <laughs> optional. Okay. We have a couple of regular things as well to cover on this episode. And one of them is what we call Twish, also known as This Week in Skeptical History. And this week, I'd like to mention someone who was born in Germany. Actually, he was a German scientist, philosopher, and a great popularizer of science. Ooh. And the name was August Christoph Karl Vogt. I'm hoping that I'm not butchering that name Nailed too it. much. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're both experts sure, on German, sure, sure. Yeah. German pronunciations. That's good. So he was born on the 5th of July, 1817. And uh, he was like the, the kind of guy that we would like to see more of in the skeptical movement. Because not only he was a great skeptic, he was the kind of person who supported back then it was a big thing to be a supporter of the idea of evolution by natural selection. Uh, he was a contemporary of Darwin. He was a contemporary and a b good friend of Louis Agassiz. I don't know if that name sounds familiar I've to you. I've heard of Andre Agassiz, the tennis player. Are they, are they uh, related? No, 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 no. No, okay. I don't think they are related. But uh, Louis Agassiz was the, the one who came up with um, the idea of glaciations. So Ooh. like the like glacial periods in the history of Earth. Karl Vogt was a great supporter of that, one of the early ones uh, among them. And um, he was a proponent of scientific materialism and atheism as well. So obviously, he got into a lot of trouble for that. Mm. But why I'd like to mention him is because he could still find a way to become involved with politics as well. So he didn't shy away from politics just because his ideas and his uh, way of thinking was too far off from what the mainstream was at the time. Mm -hmm. So you should have the courage to try to be a representative of the people, even if you are 
trying to represent a smaller minority of people yeah because it's important and you can be true to yourself and that is what we lack in politics these days i mean i'm not implying that it used to be better because politics has always been dirty but it will definitely stay dirty unless we do something about it and doing something about it could mean that we enter politics and the field of politics and uh, we've been advocating that for a while but this is a great example it sure is so and do do we know anything about carl's tennis playing did he have a good backhand on him like Corey (laughs) yagasi i don't think didn't appear in the wikipedia record no but like you gotta admire someone who i think we can say is on the right side of education and right side of history trying to sort of push that politically at a time where you know, you know you're a minority and you know it's, you know, politics moves slow, society moves slow, and you know that the fruits of your labor aren't going to come during your own lifetime in most cases. So, you know, that's certainly to be admired. Yeah. Today, we were crossing a couple of um, construction sites in the Rockies when we entered the Rockies and uh, the Banff National Park. And just before the entrance to the Banff National Park, there is a construction site for an overpath for uh, animals, like a wildlife corridor. Nice. And we were just chatting with one of the passengers of mine. It has to come from a forward-thinking, long-term kind of attitude, right? Because it's one thing that you have to construct that, but you have to plan for a far future because with the animals will take about 10-15 years to get used to the fact that there is an overpath and they can actually use that safely. Yeah, It requires long-term thinking and uh, that's very rare to come across when it comes to politics. For sure it is, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's celebrate the birthday of August Christoph Karl Vogt, who was born on the 5th of July, 1817. Happy celestial birthday, dude. He's playing tennis (laughs) up in the sky right now with his mate Agassi. (laughs) Why are you so fixated with tennis? Do you play tennis? No. Watching a bit of Wimbledon right now, though. Lots of good stuff there. (laughs) Okay. Moving on. Usually what comes here is uh, when Pontus poked the Pope. However, in the absence of Pontus, we have another thing prepared that is of equal fun, and that we call Brian bashes the bishop, right? (laughs) Well, we'll not get into the details of that. Okay. We are video chatting here, so I I, I hope that is... Who knows what's going on underneath the desk here, right? Okay, look, both hands up, you're fine. Okay. So this story comes from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, It's a website called The Tablet. I'm sure you're aware of it, Andras. It is the International Mm -hmm. Catholic News Weekly. Pontus probably reads it. So the headline is, Irish Bishop Defends Abortion Law Waiting Period. So this is where, if you want to get an abortion, yeah, there's a this like three-day waiting period. You go and see your health practitioner on one day, and then you have to wait three days to, I don't know, mull over your situation as if you hadn't already done so, uh, and then come back to be allowed to have your abortion. That's currently under review. Now... Bishop Kevin Doran said that the three-day waiting period helps save women, quote, from a decision that they may regret for the rest of their lives. 
So he said that health service executive figures had shown that large numbers of women, 27%, do not return after the three days, indicating that over a quarter of women change their minds for one reason or another. Now, Andrash, that sounds like a big number, doesn't it? 27%? Does that sound right to you? Well, doesn't. (laughs) Do Do you know what the source is for that? Uh, the Catholic Church? Uh, the source is, nobody knows. Ah, okay. Certainly wasn't cited in the article, and I was well. unable to find it, even with my Google-foo skills, right? So, no citation at all. Sketchy number. We'll come back to that number. He said mm-hmm. the review of the abortion law, which recommends making that waiting period optional, he says that that review published different lower figures coming from a pro-abortion source, right? So (laughs) they're questioning the actual statistics, which we'll come to in a moment. There's nothing in the legislation designed to find out why those 30,000 women sought abortion over the past four years. What were their circumstances, physically, economically, or emotionally? What other options they might have been given? Or what has happened to them since? Now, I I can answer that question. The main reason is none of your fucking business. Nothing to do with you. Their bodies, their choice. However, credit where credit's due, maybe the bishop hasn't discovered Google yet. You can Google it, right? You can find out the reasons for abortion. There have been plenty of studies on this subject, right? And there's, you know, many, many different reasons, right? It could be financial. It could be timing, partner-related reasons. Hey, if you've got an abusive partner, maybe you don't want to bring a child into that relationship. Other responsibilities like, hey, I've already got a bundle of kids, right? Uh, Emotions, mental health, physical health, right? And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on, right? Those are all cited reasons, right? So I don't think there's any reason to think that the Republic of Ireland societally is massively different from, you know, many other countries where, where abortion is commonplace. So mm. let's, let's juxtapose that story in the tablet with the, you know, a slightly more rational version of it from the Irish Daily Mirror. Headline is mandatory three day wait to access abortion care is inappropriate and patronising, top doctor says. Okay, so doctor, actual healthcare professional, right? So an anonymised analysis of early abortion in 2021 from the Irish Family Planning Association, presumably that's the pro-abortion group that the bishop was speaking about, showed that 97.5% of people still went ahead with abortion care after the three-day gap, right? Now, a little bit of bad journalism there, no link to the data source for that, but it was easily found because they at least mentioned where that data comes from. So I did find it, found the citation, no problems at all. There's the data, right? The IFPA medical director said that the data were in line with the views and experiences of leading medical experts and of the World Health Organization that an enforced waiting period before abortion care is unjustifiable and patronizing, right? So they know that, that this like mandatory waiting period causes stress and harm to the pregnant people. And, uh, you know, sometimes it can make it too late to avail of care. And obviously, if you are lower in income, then it might be more difficult for you to get and make multiple doctor appointments and get time off work and so on and so forth, right? So, huh, once again, 
We have the Catholic Church wading in on matters of bodily autonomy of people who have a uterus, which, let's be clear, has nothing to do with them. But they also appear to be misrepresenting the data and are completely unclear about the type of dialogue that would naturally happen between a health professional and a patient, even if the mandatory waiting period was not present. Because let's be realistic, hmm. if somebody goes for that intervention and they're not sure about it, they don't just go straight up there and stick their legs up in the old stirrups, right? They have a conversation first, right? So that 97.5% yeah. might remain the same even without that inhumane waiting period. Okay. And it is a very complex problem and it cannot be simplified and especially not based on religious dogmas. Y yeah, it's <laughs> I think that's the thing. It, it's a complex situation and the interventions should be made as simple and convenient for those people as possible, right? And, you know, yeah. appropriate health care and counselling is, is, of course, important. All right. Exactly. Let's exactly. terminate this item and go on to the next one. <laughs> I'm getting depressed. <laughs> Ooh, interesting choice of words. Yes, uh, let's move on to, uh, well, probably uh, more positive things to discuss. We'll see. In the news. Well, I'm not sure how much of actual news it is, but it is uh, just currently, just recently, a couple of days ago, when I came across this on um, the Giveaway blog. And they report, based on an article on Tagesanzeiger... Nailed it again. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Lots of <laughs> these German words are creeping up on me these they, 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 today. It's it's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with them. However, this is a news outlet from out of Switzerland. And they report that apparently the number of consultations about different traditional Chinese medicine and medicinal homeopathic and other kind of interventions that fall into the category of compl complementary and alternative medicine and are available on the healthcare insurance, they are declining. And one of the good things, apparently, about having them in the national healthcare system, and that's been going on since 2009, mm -hmm. and part of them is um, from back in 2012, they wanted to try whether it makes any sense to subsidize these uh, actual treatments and uh, these interventions, let's say, yeah. uh, not necessarily should be called treatments. However, what falls into these categories? It's uh, anthroposophy, mm -hmm. homeopathy, phytotherapy, and traditional Chinese medicine. Oh, whoa, whoa, so, whoa, whoa. what was that third one? Phytotherapy. Phytotherapy. So it's like, like a plant. It, it has to do with plants. So like plant-based therapies. Okay. Well, that's a new one for me. Thank you. Is it? Yeah. Is it? Okay. So it's been available since 2012 on the basic insurance uh, plans. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, it was experimental. But then uh, from 2017, it was made permanent. But now... As a result of that, it means that it had to have statistical data available about them. Yep. So the visits to these practitioners had to be tracked in order for them to be able to fund them. Yeah. And it really looks like the visits 
to these practitioners declined significantly, at least two of them. One of them is homeopathy, and the other one is TCM, so traditional Chinese medicine, Mm -hmm. which was not that steady of a decline. It had these uh, bumps, but it's still declining. So the general trend is declining. Anthroposophy and phytotherapy, on the other hand, is not declining. But homeopathy has significantly declined as well. Mm. So that means that people were voting with their feet. So they just decided not to go for these therapies on offer by the healthcare system, which is a good thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that in outside of the healthcare system, they do not visit these practitioners. That's true. And some data is available suggesting that that is unfortunately the case. So even though the things that are offered on the healthcare system, they are being replaced with something else, Mm -hmm. something that is still in the realm of complementary and alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that the skepticism has taken place, much of it at least, but um, it's more like it's shifting towards something that is not available yet on the, I always want to say NHS, but it's not the NHS. It's the, equivalent it's the Swiss of, healthcare yeah. system. It's the equivalent of the NHS. The Swiss HS, whatever it's called. Okay. I mean, if you're a doctor and you're referring someone to for homeopathy or whatever, and then that person comes back for another appointment, you know, a month later and they're still not well, then maybe you're not going to refer again. So, and, and of course, if, if it's a health insurance system, you know, if there's one thing that insurers are good at, it's crunching statistical data and figuring out what's, what's effective and what's not. So, you know, maybe there's guidance in that respect. And we see that from time to time. Every time you look at, Larger organizations, health organizations kind of looking at the, the success rates or the effectiveness of these complementary, you know, therapies. Yeah. You know, the, the data is always found wanting and, and it's either trimmed down or cut out completely. So long may that trend continue. And, you know, if people are going out off elsewhere and spending their own hard earned cash on it, that's unfortunate, of course, but, you know, at least it's not public money. It's that's up to going, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's up to them. And it's not wasting public money on something that has been proven not to work. Yeah. So it's very simple. There is an other interesting part of this is that apparently there are fewer and fewer doctors who actually try to get that certificate of homeopathy or tra- traditional Chinese medicine. Mm. There is no data available as to whether it's a result or the cause of that phenomenon that has been measured in the surveys. It could be because of the declining need and the doctors decide not to go for these areas. Mm. But it could be the other way around, that because of the declining availability of these services causes that there is a decline in these. Think about it, it's not not a surprise, right? If you're a young, intelligent driven medical student you know with a great desire to help people you know hey do you want to learn real medicine or do you want to learn some (laughs) theoryology um yeah i'll i'll go for the real medicine thanks you know so uh, you know that that, that's a good sign as well i guess maybe many of those young aspiring doctors have been listening to skeptical podcasts like ours and it's informed their decision you're welcome folks okay don't want to take all the credit (laughs) but happy to take most of it okay 
yeah, yeah. And the the important thing is that we all listen to experts and not people who claim to know something that is not based on any kind of evidence. Yeah. Because we can end up in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking of experts, let's talk a little bit about climate. So I live in Scotland. Listeners, you may not have guessed Good from my you. well-spoken accent, but over here in Scotland, we're not used to nice weather. But last month in June, we had weeks and weeks of very hot weather and pretty much no rain, almost completely unheard of. And I'm, you know, a fair age these days, okay? It's warmest and driest I can remember, right? And I've had a lot of dry spells in my life. Um, but of course, we skeptics know not to be fooled by unusual local weather patterns as they may not be indicative of what's going on elsewhere in the world. But Scotland certainly wasn't alone. Like, starting with the UK as a whole to start with, right? There was an article in BBC science. Uh, UK weather, hottest June since records began. So um, the average monthly temperature of 15.8 degrees centigrade, 60.4 Fahrenheit, exceeded the previous highest average June temperature recorded in 1940 and 1976. And it broke that record by 0.9 degrees centigrade. So that's a fair amount over and above the record. Records were broken in 72 of the 97 areas in the UK from which temperature data is collected, as well as the overall UK June record England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland each recorded their warmest June since the Met Office started collecting data in 1884. And rain was also in short supply for much of the month with just 68% of the average June rainfall. In fact, little park over the road from us has got a nice little kind of swampy pond that had some uh, little tadpoles in them at the start, uh, start <laughs> and middle of May. I'm afraid that pond completely dried up. Don't know what came of the tadpoles, but haven't seen many frogs around. Put it that way. Sorry, folks. So, quote, we found that the chance of observing a June beating the previous joint 1940-1976 record of 14.9 degrees centigrade has at least doubled since the 1940s, right? Alongside natural variability, the background warming of Earth's atmosphere due to human-induced climate change has driven up the possibility of reaching record high temperatures. That's just the UK, right? Maybe in the UK we're just getting lucky with a particularly hot month and regression to the mean will happen over the years to come. But this more recent story from just a few days ago indicates otherwise, right? Climate change, world's hottest day since records began. So, Monday the 3rd of July, just a few days ago, the average global temperature topped 17 degrees Celsius for the first time, right? That broke the previous record of 16.92 that had stood since August 2016. And that's due to a combination of the uh, El Nino weather pattern and ongoing emissions of carbon dioxide. Uh, researchers believe there will be more records in the coming months as El Nino strengthens, so look out for that. So, the, this article had numerous other examples of hot stuff happening across the planet. And by hot, I mean temperature, not sexy. But in the interest of not depressing you lovely listeners anymore, I'll spare you all of those details. The reading, though, is not good. So once again, more evidence that we humans are turning up the heat on our planet. No doubt the Uh deniers will be popping their fingers in their ears and closing their eyes and not listening. But 
you know, keep keep having those conversations with people who don't believe in this phenomenon. The data is it's been undeniable for a while, but you know, time and time again we see things like you know these stats like these come up, and uh, you know, if you're if you're still in denial at this point, you know, um, you're really not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, paying attention is one part of assessing certain risks and possibilities of things. And uh, we are not very good at that. No. I mean, by us, I mean humans. Probabilities and thinking along the lines of probabilities is not our strong suit. This is why when something comes up in the news that says, for example, that aspartame is carcinogenic, Well, that is a little bit of an oversimplification of uh, what was said. Mm -hmm. That is a very popular sweetener found in many, many products. I'm a big fan of it. So are we all going to die now? Because um, I'm consuming a lot of it. I mean, probably not even close to the so far established uh, safe levels. There's that- some in my coffee right now, folks. I'm going to take a drink, right? And if I suddenly go quiet... <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that means that... I, that I mean, how okay, scientific it's- can you get, right? <laughs> so what's this whole thing about... I'm pretty sure that all the skeptical, skeptical podcasts will be talking about this um, very soon. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but... There is an agency, that International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is under the umbrella of the World Health Organization. Yep. And uh, they occasionally issue categorizations and reports that claim that some of the different materials used in certain products or that some activity can be potentially dangerous to consume, dangerous to be kept on. This is what happens or in the process of happening with aspartame. Aspartame is a very frequently used sweetener that is really, really sweet. So like 200 times sweeter than sugar. This means that you don't have to use that large amount of this uh, sweetener for your beverage to be equally sweet. This is why it has been quite a, a big hit. Because a low-calorie diet requires something like that. Yeah. But the problem is that the WHO, and especially the ARC, so the International Agency for Research on Cancer, they have like certain levels of certainty as to how carcinogenic something is. Yeah. There are four levels. Actually, there are three numbers, one, two, and three. But the level two is divided into two categories. One of them is probably carcinogenic to humans, and the other one is possibly carcinogenic to humans. Yeah, I've heard of this before. I think there's some weird stuff on there. Like, I think, like, working in a hairdresser's is like a 2B or something like that. I've looked this up before, right? It's a 2B. It's a 2B. It's a possibly carcinogenic. There you go. Well, it's what, it, what is a little bit stronger than that is probably carcinogenic. So what the difference is between these is that when it's something is possibly carcinogenic, it means that it, there is very limited evidence yeah. in humans. And when it comes to experimental evidence for other animals, then the data available is less than sufficient to assess whether the hazard is there. That's 2B. 2A what aspartame is about to be put into means that there is limited evidence 
for cancer mm-hmm. in humans. Limited evidence means not very strong evidence. Yeah. It needs a lot more research before we can actually assess it. But, well, there is kind of sufficient evidence in other animals that is uh, of an experimental source. So when it comes to high-temperature frying, that is probably carcinogenic to humans. DDT, I was surprised to learn that DDT is in that category and not in the carcinogenic to humans. Mm -hmm. But one, one thing that we have to understand is even if something is in that category, before we have sufficient evidence for cancer to be developing in humans as a result of consuming something, we still need to factor in the concentrations. It's the basis of toxicology that everything has to be understood in the context of concentrations. Yeah. Without knowing what the concentrations are that we are working with, there's no sense in discussing this in further detail. Mm-hmm. And this is why I started with aspartame being so sweet that in order for the same level of sweetness to be achieved, you need just a tiny portion of the amount of what you consume of sugar. Yeah. The previously established safe levels, you would need to consume like, I don't know, tens of liters of drinks per day, which would never do. And it would cause you a lot of trouble anyway because of all the other stuff that you consume with it. Yeah. So, well, what if you were just having uh, them on their own, just popping them like little sweeties? I mean, I don't recommend that, folks. It's probably not very tasty, but. Um, nah. Nah. I'd, despite the fact they're sweet, they're not that nice on their own, I think. Nice in a coffee, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, it is something that we have to take with a grain of salt. Or, or a grain of artificial sweetener. Yeah. Take it with a grain of aspartame, folks. Yeah. <laughs> a grain of aspartame is a very small. Yeah. Yeah, you have to take it with that because running around and claiming that this uh, sweetener will kill us all, and now it is leading to conspiracy, all kinds of conspiracy theories as well, because look, the food industry has been poisoning us for years and years and years on. It doesn't make sense. You have to be able to think about this in a sensible way. Yeah. Well, it's not the first time that IARC have have courted controversy with their classifications, right? I mean, it is fun to work in the IARC. We know that much, right? But obviously like bacon's in there as well but the big controversy yep. like that rippled around the skeptical community was i don't know like seven or eight years ago that glyphosate which is the herbicide yep. that was you know produced by those demons over there in monsanto that was given the 2a classification and um the evidence behind that decision came from some pretty sketchy studies and and, and if you want to know more on that history folks you can go look at for youtuber miles power m-y-l-e-s power uh, he he did a number of uh, of episodes about the studies that that were that were used to make that decision, and they were highly highly questionable. So, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think you know. Bottom line: stick a sweetener in your coffee if you so desire. Stick some glyphosate on your to get rid of your weeds if you want, and you'll probably be just <laughs> fine. Just you know, just don't don't yeah. don't chug it down. You know, it's probably not going to do you any good in that respect, right? Yeah, and we started out by discussing how probabilities are not our strong suit. Yeah, then it comes to the two different concepts of hazard and risk. Yeah, we are talking about a hazard here that can be associated with a risk, but the risk is a much more complex thing because it has other factors 
to take into consideration uh, when we try to assess what risk is associated with consuming something. Yeah. One of those factors is the aforementioned concentration. It does matter how much you consume of a certain thing, even if it can be potentially hazardous. For sure. Yeah. Okay, talking about hazards and risks, there are all those associated with a couple of interventions that people take. I think it's time that we moved on to finding out who's been really wrong or really right. Okay, so this week we have a really wrong. And as far as wrongs are concerned, this is about as wrong as it gets, folks. So... We spotted the story from the blog of Edzard Ernst, you might have heard of him, with the somewhat shocking headline, quote, another death caused by a chiropractor, non-medically trained alternative practitioner, question mark. But the story had a much better headline in German newspaper Das Bild. Their headline was, man dies after penis injection, which... Really goes straight to the point, if you forgive the pun, right? So, what's happening? On July the 7th, somebody called Torben K, we don't have their full name, 46 years old, will be on trial. The alternative Mm -hmm. practitioner is said to, is said to have injected silicone oil into the penis and testicles of a 32 year old man at his request. So, it, it was consensual penis and bollock injections, folks, which, you know, consent's important, I guess. However, back home, that 32-year-old patient suddenly developed shortness of breath, had to be hospitalised, and then transferred to the University Hospital in Giessen. Seven months after that injection, he died. Um, according to the indictment, the patient suffered multiple organ failure. Uh, that's what you get for having your organ injected um, as a result of blood poisoning. So, you know, that's a horrible, slow death for something that was, let's face it, unnecessary. So three days yeah. of, of trial are scheduled. The defendant faces up to 15 years in prison. Uh, the indictment is for bodily harm, resulting in death and violation of the alternative practitioner law. Right, so oh yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. I, I, I don't know the details of that law, right? But um, presume, presumably, there's limitations on what alternative health practitioners are meant to be doing. So yeah, the practice is often used for penis enlargement and is mm-hmm. not uncommon for health complications to occur. Uh, yeah, it turns out injecting oil into your tadger, folks, isn't um, isn't isn't great, right? So, just again, just a quick reminder of definitions: the the accused is a chiropractor. I'm sure you've heard Annika mention it many times before on the show. This is a sort of naturopathic profession in Germany, and it is, you know, I guess officially recognised as an alternative and complementary healthcare profession. But they are not qualified to do that type of procedure. So the the you know our, our practitioner in question gets the really wrong award for the week and I I think prison sentence is certainly merited right this is an, an unnecessary death right now yeah um point though like don't take medical advice from a podcast blah 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 right I'm going to give my fellow penis owners out there some wisdom right <laughs> don't let anybody <laughs> inject anything into your penis right 
fuck. And like some of us are more blessed in that department than others, right? It's part of the wonders of nature, right? Brian Jr. is far from impressive, but even if you don't die from this procedure, you're going to end up with a wanger that looks like a sort of an undercooked chipolata, right? So just don't, don't bother. Spend your time and money finding someone compatible with you that love and respect you just as you are. Your chances of happiness with happiness are much greater if you just do that. Mm. So don't take medical advice from a podcast, but coaching is fine. <laughs> Absolutely. Life coaching. Yeah, yeah. life coaching is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Life coaching available. Um, you know, if you if your Patreon donations are high enough, you can get some personalized life coaching. We'll set a target, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that, Brian. And that brings us to the end of today's show. However, I believe we do have a quote as well. Yes, indeed we do. So uh, this week's quote. I can assure you that the greatest pleasure I derive from success is the hope of doing good by the propagation of useful truths amongst a class of people who accepting in a popular familiar form would never have become acquainted with them. Now that quote is from Jane Marsett. She was born in 1769, died in 1858, and she was an innovative, successful writer of popular introductory science books. She also broke Mm. new ground with conversations on political economy, right? So in her prefaces, she addressed whether such knowledge was suitable for women, arguing against objections and stating that public opinion supported her view. So not only a feminist, right, but, but also trying to bring science to the public in an accessible form, right? And as a non-scientist myself, right, you know, I, I have hoovered up many, many pop science books. And I know some pop science books have their critics and have their faults. But, you know, for someone like me who just doesn't have that deep level of understanding, they are vital for me to at least dip my toes into the into the wonderful world of science. So it seems like Jane Marsett was ahead of the game in the pop science business. Yeah. Wow. Thank you very much for that. Pleasure. It's amazing. I love learning new stuff, and I do that every day. Um, So (laughs) thanks for helping out with that. And uh, indeed, thanks for joining me today, Brian. It has been a blast. That was super fun. Andres, you are worth getting up early for, okay? My bleary eyes today are going to be well worth it. Okay. (laughs) Hope you'll have the the, the chance to get where rested at some point to make up for this. But uh, I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so because we will keep producing the podcast. And until next week, when hopefully the others are back as well, goodbye. Get up, yeah. Vislat. (laughs) Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. 
If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Kisha J. Gray and George Rubb and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.vesb.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. There we go. Mm-hmm. Testing, testing. All right. I'm, I am seeing some ups and downsies on the timeline. That is looking good. Such professionals. Uh, <laughs> All right. Let's do this. <laughs> wow. That- <laughs> Within the confines of the palace, uh, yeah. uh, the palace. <laughs> cut, cut, cut that out, Pontus. Please. <laughs> recording of some bloody hell. Now, now I have to. <laughs> Sorry, I need to shut up, Andrush, because I'm recording system audio, and he messaged me to ask if you got the link. I won't really have time for that right now, Andrush. So I'll just put myself on. Do not disturb totally fine and i didn't swear so you know bonus oh, because you want to start very... over <laughs> <laughs> you missed that uh choose what's the swedish one hey no hey no